0: If you have a copy of God's Word, please turn in your Bibles to Psalm 30, Psalm chapter 30, as we continue our series of messages on the book of Psalms. Today we're going to be talking about growing in gratitude, growing in gratitude. We've talked about how the book of Psalms is a compilation of responses to just about every human experience imaginable. And what the Psalms are meant to do is to give us a vocabulary, create a response that we're to pray back to God in those different seasons of life. And so we've talked about uh, despair and desperation and discouragement and how lament and Psalms of lament give us words to say back to God. We've talked about praise and how we are called to joyously declare God's goodness in our lives. When we feel his presence, especially that, we're, that we've got language that the psalms give us on how to talk to God and declare his goodness. But today I also want you to recognize that one of the types of psalms we see woven throughout this compilation are psalms of thanksgiving. Gratitude or thanksgiving is acknowledging the contribution others have made on our behalf. Gratitude, thankfulness, is when I see what someone else has done for me and recognize it, call it out, and acknowledge that. So from a biblical standpoint, gratitude from a biblical standpoint, then, is us recognizing God's goodness in our lives, living our lives as a response to the goodness that God has poured out in our lives. This is important because in a real sense, gratitude is this kind of baseline, foundational set of responses we're to have to God. What fuels our obedience is not guilt or duty to God. What's meant to fuel our obedience as followers of Christ is thankfulness and gratitude to God. So on my watch here, I've got a a heart rate function. Some of you have a, a watch that'll measure what your heart rate's doing and If I look at that function, it'll tell me, for example, uh, what my current heart rate is as I'm up here preaching. It'll even tell me if I'm running or walking, kind of the highs and the lows. But it also has on my watch a function to show me my average heart rate or my resting heart rate for a day. What that shows me is kind of despite the highs and the lows, here's kind of where I'm leveling off. Here's where my heart is kind of normally operating at. And we know that there's a certain range depending on your age and where you're at in life where your heart should be functioning. Kind of an average resting range for your heart. Well, What I want you to see about gratitude this morning is gratitude is your spiritual average resting heart rate. There may be some highs in your life where you're praising God and you're joyful and you're excited and there may be lows in your life or you're discouraged and you're crying out to God, but that kind of average zone, that kind of foundational place for our hearts is meant to be one of gratitude, thankfulness for what God has done for us. Now the reason I think this is critically important is because gratitude oftentimes in our lives is very elusive. While gratitude is is supposed to be this kind of average resting heart rate for our lives, spiritually speaking, gratitude can be something that's often very difficult to cultivate in our lives. One of the hardest things for me to recognize in my own life or to see in others is ingratitude, a lack of thankfulness for what I have and what I've been given. And part of the reason I think this is the case is because our culture is constantly telling us with increasing frequency that we deserve more we should be given more we should have more Shelly and I had the privilege this last week to go on a cruise together and on the cruise they're trying to get us to book our next cruise right and I don't think there's anything wrong with vacations or cruises But man, when you're telling me all the time, I deserve this next thing, I should have this next experience, all of this should be mine, it's very easy for me to adopt this very ungrateful kind of perspective on life. Like life hasn't given me enough. Like I haven't been given what I should deserve, what I should be given And so, what we've got to be careful of as followers of Christ is that we don't allow this kind of consumeristic perspective on the world to shape how we look at the world. Because the reality is, the gospel of Jesus Christ is diametrically opposed to consumerism. It says, actually, Jesus has given you far more than you deserve. Because what you deserve is the wrath and the justice and the punishment of a loving God in an everlasting hell. That's what we deserve. But what Jesus has given us is greater and grander and more glorious because while we deserve that, he gives us grace and mercy and kindness. And if that's the truth, if if we all would affirm that what we've just sung and declared to God is true, how do we cultivate a life of gratitude and thankfulness for God that says, God, you have given me more than I should have ever been given. Psalm 30 I want to suggest three kind of dimensions or three ingredients that are necessary for cultivating gratitude. The first one I want you to notice in this passage is that gratitude is personal. If you and I are going to cultivate gratitude in our lives, it is first of all personal. Look in your Bibles at verse 1 of Psalm 30. He says, "I will exalt you, Lord," Because you have lifted me up and not allowed my enemies to triumph over me. Lord, my God, I cried to you for help and you healed me. Lord, you brought me up from Sheol. You spared me from, a, from among those going down to the pit. What you see in David's language here is intense thankfulness and gratitude for God's deliverance in his life. He used words like healed me, brought me up, lifted me up. God cried and he responded. There's a specific reference here to Sheol or the pit. These are references in the Old Testament to the place of the dead. And so David is saying, God, you you literally have brought me up from death itself. My enemies were going to destroy me. They were going to triumph over me, but God, you delivered me. The visual that this text kind of makes us consider is, is one of a, a well. If you've ever seen one of those old wells with stone around the, the mouth of the well and it goes in really deep and there's a, a pulley and a, an old wooden kind of a bucket there with a metal handle. There's a rope attached to that. And if you've ever seen it in a movie, maybe in real life you've seen somebody take a well and, and have it go way down to the bottom of that well. So deep, so dark is the bottom of that well you can't see it. And that well goes in that, that, that bucket, goes in that water, and it pulls it up and it brings out of the depths of that well. That's the picture that David's describing here. He's like, God, I was at the bottom of a well so deep, you could not see me. It was so dark, so black, that's where I was headed, but you, you brought me up, you lifted me up out of that experience. And while I think David's testimony of God's deliverance is important, it's also equally important for us to notice how David talks about this deliverance. Did you notice how? Because notice in this passage, I want to read it again, notice the number of first-person pronouns David uses as he personalizes what God has done for him. Look in your Bibles again and notice these, and we get the right emphasis on the right syllable, okay? Verse 1, "...I will exalt you, Lord." Because you have lifted me up and have not allowed my enemies to triumph over me. Lord, my God, I cried to you for help and you healed me. Lord, you brought me up from Sheol. You spared me from among those going down to the pit. This is not... An impersonal declaration of God's deliverance of somebody else in some faraway land. No, David is personalizing what God has done for him. He's making the promises of God personal and real in his life. This is important because we all know that there's power when things are personal. If you've gone through something difficult in your life, it's very easy when you hear about somebody else going through that same type of thing, for it to touch you, for it to affect you, because you've walked through that, you've gone through something that was difficult, and you hear about somebody else's situation, and it, it touches your heart. That's the way Shelly and I are um, in our family when we talk about miscarriages. Shelly and I had a miscarriage before every single one of our kids. And uh, the first one was particularly challenging um, We got married in 2008 and we were trying to start a family and I left to go on a mission trip to the other side of the world. And in the middle of this mission trip, in the middle of telling people about Jesus and talking to them and sharing with them, Shelly calls me and she's crying. And through her tears, when I'm on the other side of the world, I make out the word miscarriage. And she's crying and there's a, flood of emotions that are going through my mind not least of which is if I get on a plane right now I'm 12 hours away from where she's at thankfully um, we were living in Fort Worth at the time and her family was close enough to help and they were able to help and friends came over and took her to the hospital and got her taken care of and it was an incredibly painful moment for our family so that now because of what we've experienced and what we've gone through as a family, anytime I hear somebody else go through something like that, it touches me. It, it affects me in a real and powerful way. Maybe it's not miscarriage for you. Maybe it's cancer. Maybe it's the death of a loved one. Maybe it's a financial hardship you've been through and, and when you hear somebody else going through that, it, it touches your heart, it, it pricks your soul. But the reason things that are personal touch us, is because they're real to us. We've experienced them ourselves, and when we hear about them in somebody else's life, it touches us very deeply. The reason personal things are powerful is because they are real to us. What Psalm 30 then is meant to do in our lives is in the same way that a miscarriage would touch our family, or cancer might touch yours, David's testimony of God's deliverance is meant to touch us. Because you, if you know Jesus, you too have been delivered. You've been delivered from the brink of destruction and death because of your sin and what you've earned because of that. And you've received an everlasting, unconditional, never-ending love and the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And the question is, is that personal to you? You see, because the principle these first three verses give us as it relates to gratitude is gratitude grows when grace is personal to us. Gratitude grows in my life for grace and for what Jesus has done for me when it's personal to me. When I recognize that my sin this past week, maybe even this very day, sins that you've committed, sent Jesus to the cross. Jesus did not just die for people long ago in a galaxy far away. Jesus died for your sins. Things you did this very week that in and of themselves are enough to send you to hell forever. Is the grace of God personal to you? Could, could it be that some of us this morning are struggling to be thankful to God for what He's done for us because it's become impersonal to us? It's become theoretical to us. Sin is, yeah, it's kind of a big deal, but it's not really that important you've been reading through the Bible with us this past week in the book of Judges, you know that there was a key point where the book of Judges lays out this really tragic pattern the nation of Israel goes through, where they disobey God, God brings judgment, they cry out to God, God raises up a deliverer, He brings them back, and no sooner has God brought them back till they're right back disobeying again. And the book of Judges is this kind of downward spiral that we're going to watch over these chapters that we're reading. But if you're paying attention towards the beginning of the book of Judges, we see the fuse that's lit that sends the book of Judges and the nation of Israel downward on the spiral. This is the phrase. That whole generation was gathered to their ancestors, and after them, another generation rose up, who did not know the Lord or the works he had done for Israel. You see, as great as Joshua's generation was, as magnificent the things that they saw and beheld were that God accomplished on their behalf, they failed to pass that on to their children. And as a result... The nation of Israel had a generation grew up who knew about the goodness of God, who knew about his might and his power, but had never really truly brought it to bear in their own lives. It was theoretical. It was impersonal. It wasn't real to them. I got to tell you, even as I say this now, as I look at you, I'm concerned. I'm i I'm, I'm. I'm I'm burdened that some of us are just going through the motions. That we're just playing church. That we, that we don't really see. That when we sing, sing these words about what God has done for us, that it's more than just emotion and notes that are coming out of our mouths. That it's reality. That save for the blood and the forgiveness of Jesus, we will be lost and hopeless. Don't let grace become impersonal in your life. Make sure you always keep before you that it was your sin that sent Jesus to the cross. That it was your sin that led him to Calvary to die in your place. That it was your sin that he suffered and died for. If we ever lose the personal dimension of grace, it's incredibly difficult to be grateful for it because it's not real to us. If we're going to be thankful for the grace and the mercy that God has given us, it's got to be, first of all, personal to us. But the second thing that this passage shows us is that gratitude is not only personal, it's also communal. Gratitude is communal. Look at verses 4 and 5 to see how David continues to praise God for the depths of his grace. Verse 4, we read this, Sing to the Lord, you, you his faithful ones, and praise his holy name for his anger lasts only a moment, but his favor a lifetime. Weeping may stay overnight, but there is joy in the morning. David is dealing with the depths and the riches of God's grace. He's talking about these polarities. He talks about anger and favor. He talks about a moment and a lifetime, evening, morning, weeping, and rejoicing. And what David's commenting on is that God's grace does include a a sanctifying grace, one that changes us, molds us, shapes us, often disciplines us. We'll talk more about the disciplining of God's grace in a moment. But what's in view here is this beautiful metaphor that God can take weeping that's overnight, that's temporary, but transform our weeping and our sorrow into a joy that always comes in the morning. He's talking about this beautiful, transforming grace that Paul also testified about in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 17, when he said, For our momentary light affliction is producing for us an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. But what's more than what David is saying is I also want you to notice again how David is saying this. Notice in your Bibles, how he's saying this he says sing to the lord you his faithful ones and praise his holy name in other words this is not just david praising god david is also encouraging the people of god to join him in his praise of god this is a call and appeal to the community of god the church as it's revealed in the new testament to praise god together this is also borne out in the title of the psalm, back at the beginning of verse 1. Before verse 1, it says, A psalm, a dedication song for the house of David. It's one that's meant to be sung. It was a psalm of David that was taken and used as they dedicated and worshiped God in the temple. Part of what David's tapping into here is the importance of relationships, God's tool. To communicate his gospel and to encourage the saints his relationships. Relationships are the bridges from one heart to another that God communicates truth and encourages us. Even our cultures recognize the value and the importance of relationships. I was reading two or three books while we were on the cruise and I read a book. that in part had a section on the church and community. And it was talking about relationships and the fact that in Los Angeles today there's a museum dedicated to broken relationships. The name of this museum is the Museum of Broken Relationships. And it's a museum that just chronicles the breaking down of relationships in our culture. It's got serious things on the wall like wedding dresses that were never worn. It's got emails that people have sent to each other to break up with them in dating relationships. But my favorite was a plaque on the wall where one guy was writing a little note to his ex-girlfriend, Martina. And he said this, Dear Martina, I'm still using your Netflix account. Uh, Apparently Martina had not changed the password on the Netflix account. But we all understand the value of relationships. Even our culture acknowledges that relationships are important. Even broken relationships have their own museum in our culture. But what we've got to recognize is part of what David's tapping into is that when Jesus saves you from your sin, he doesn't just connect you to himself, Jesus also connects you to other believers, especially those in your local church. So if you can visualize one of those old bicycle wheels with the hub and the spokes that had all those different spokes around, if you can picture this, before we know Christ, we are like a spoke that's disconnected from the wheel. And we're out here just flailing in the wind doing our own thing. But when Jesus saves you, What he does is he welds you. He solders you into the hub to stability and to life. But as Jesus connects you to the hub of that wheel, he also simultaneously connects you to all those other spokes, all those other people that are also connected to him. We need to be careful when we say that our faith is personal. Because while our faith is personal, it is personal. Not private. That's right. There's a difference between your faith being personal and your faith being private. Personal means it's real to you. It's alive to you. It's real in the sense that it's happened to you. You've experienced it. But we make a mistake when we think that our faith is this private, closed off thing from the rest of the world. God's plan for us is for our faith to grow and thrive in real, authentic community with other people. And so this is the principle I want you to see here in this passage. Gratitude first grows when our faith is personal. But it secondly grows, gratitude grows, when we're in authentic relationships. Now when I use the word authentic, what I'm talking about is going beyond the you're fine, I'm fine kind of conversation. I'm talking about really knowing people, really knowing their struggles and their pain and their sorrow and their joy, really seeing God work in someone's life. You see, the reason those kinds of relationships are important for gratitude is because you and I are not meant to just be encouraged about what God is doing in our lives. You and I are also meant to be encouraged by what God is doing in the lives of people around us. Because here's the deal. There are going to be seasons when you're low, when you're down. And there are going to be seasons when you're up, when you're encouraged. And what I find about the friends that I have is oftentimes when I'm down, other people are up. Oftentimes when I'm up, other people are down. It's very rarely that everybody's in the same season of life in the friend group that I have. And part of what God does in this symphony of spokes around him who is the hub is he puts people in our lives that through their words and their experiences encourage us. You see, these kinds of relationships, when they're really working right, are meant to be kind of a preview, a foretaste of what it's going to be like in heaven. Right. I, I read this this past week and it stuck with me. One author said relationships in the church are meant to be this foretaste kind of in the same way that a movie preview gives you a window into what the movie's going to be like. So right now the big movie preview, if you want to Google something, not during the service, of course, but if you want to Google a good movie preview, right now the one that's making the rounds is the Star Wars movie preview, Right. The next Star Wars movie is coming out this fall. It's really exciting. It's got lightsabers and people are jumping around and ships going everywhere. And then it ends, right? You guys know how it ends? That preview ends with the emperor who we thought was dead laughing, right? If you don't know what I'm talking about, check it out, but not during the service. okay? Uh, It's really powerful, right? And and what that movie preview does is it makes you go, man, I want to see that movie. I want to figure out what's actually going to happen and what's really going on so that I can understand what's happening. Relationships and the church are a lot like that movie preview. It's meant to pull us in and go, man, if this is what these relationships and friendships I have are really like, man, I can't wait to see what a world without sin and brokenness is really going to look like. I can't wait for that. And so my my question to you is, if that's the case, if that's what God's plan is for relationships, are you in that kind of community? Are you in those kinds of relationships with people who are actively seeing God work in their lives in such a way that it encourages you and blesses you? On the one hand, the question is, are you being that kind of person? Are you that kind of person that is an encouragement to others? But then are you opening yourself up to those other kinds of relationships? This is, I think, particularly important for us as a church right now because of where we are as a body. Um, I am incredibly privileged, um, overwhelmed to get to be your pastor, Um, to get to pastor a church who decades ago stepped out on faith and came here to this spot and trusted the Lord to be a part of a church that has seen God change lives for decades, for over a hundred years. We've seen God work and move powerfully in our midst. But I do believe that though we've seen God do some incredible things in our midst, that there are better days in front of us. I think our best days are ahead of us. And part of the reason I think that is because we are putting in the hard yards right now as we rebuild to try to do fewer things well. And one of the reasons I'm tying that into this conversation about relationships is I just want to make sure everyone understands that one of the reasons why we're doing fewer things, simplifying our schedule this fall, doing fewer things well, is one of the things we're trying to elevate and to promote are healthy, God-honoring, biblical relationships. I don't know about you, but it's hard to have friendships in America in 2019 because we're so stinking busy. It's difficult to develop and cultivate these kinds of friendships where you actually know people's struggles and fears and what God's doing in their lives. It's so easy just to fly across the surface. To come here every week and just go through the motions and while I want to reach as many people in this community and beyond that we possibly can we have to ask this question if we're trying to reach these people in this community what are we inviting them into if all we're inviting people into is a service And some programs for their kids and some ministries they can be involved in. What we're offering them is not in line with the biblical vision for the church. What we've got to be offering people is more than just a message. It's a message of truth, yes, that Jesus died for them, that he rose again. But that Jesus is restoring us. He's redeeming us. He's connecting us. He's changing us. We will thrive and reach this community for Christ in a dynamic way when in part we're making sure that what we're inviting people into are God-honoring, biblically authentic relationships with one another. That's where we're trying to go. That's what we want to see happen. Because it is so easy just to go from one thing to the next and ne- really never be known. Never really be connected. Never get to that Cheers Factor. You guys remember the show Cheers? No? Where everybody knows your name, right? That that idea. We want this to be a place where people are cared for. That you're more than just a number, that you're more than just somebody sitting in a seat, but where you're loved with the kind of love that Jesus has for us. It's one of the reasons why we believe life groups are so important here at First Baptist. It's why... Shelly and I uh, make a life group a priority in our lives because friendships are important to me. And the minute, let me just say this and we'll move on. I know some of you are ready to move on, like move on please already. I will just give me, just give me a second. If, if I think I don't need friends, The minute I begin to think I'm exempt from needing accountable relationships with other people, it's the minute the enemy has grabbed a foothold in my life. Because all of us, all of us need that friend who can speak truth into our lives and get us off the crazy train. One of of the things that I, um, it, it breaks my heart. As a pastor, is when I have a family in crisis sitting in my office, praying for a child, praying for a spouse, praying for something. Somewhere somebody's jumped the tracks. They've gone off on the crazy train, as I call it. And one of the things I'm praying for is God, please bring someone into that person's life to speak truth into them. Maybe it's a spouse that's leaving their their spouse. If it's a child that's running away, Lord, please bring someone into their life who can speak into them and they'll listen. But so often, guys, we don't have those kind of friendships. We don't have those kind of relationships. And so when we find ourselves in those positions, we're open and vulnerable to the attack of the enemy. If we're going to grow in gratitude, we have to do it in community with other believers. Finally, not only is gratitude personal and communal, it is also confessional. Gratitude is confessional. Now, I want you to notice this because in verses 6-12, through 12, you're going to see David confess some sin in his life, okay? I want you to notice the progression he walks through ahead of time. Because what he's going to do is he's going to say, God, I've, I've sinned. You're going to see David confess the sin of overconfidence and self-sufficiency. You're secondly going to see God discipline David. Then you're going to see David cry out for help. You're going to see his prayer. And finally, you're going to see God restore him. Look at verse 6 and notice David's sin. Here's David's sin. When I was secure, I said, I will never be shaken. Lord, when you showed me your favor, you made me stand like a strong mountain. Yet, here's the discipline. When you hid your face, I was terrified. Lord, I called to you. Here's the prayer. I sought favor from my Lord. What gain is there? Here's the content of David's prayer. What gain is there in my death if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it proclaim your truth? Lord, listen and be gracious to me. Lord, be my helper. Then see God's restoration in David's life. Verse 11. You turned my lament into dancing and removed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness. So that I can sing to you and not be silent, Lord my God, I will praise you forever. There was a strategic and critical moment in David's life when he was really at the peak of his power. And he looked at his advisors and said, guys, I think it's time for a census. I think we need to do accounting of the strength of our army. David's advisors said, David, you don't want to do that. Don't, don't do this great sin against the Lord. And it's very easy to kind of misunderstand what David's talking about because what's happening there is that census, that kind of counting of his strength was something that pagan kings did to, one, validate their own authority, their own power, but, to remind their people that they were king. It was something that signified David's confidence and strength in his army and in himself rather than the Lord. And so his advisors said, David, don't, don't do this. Don't, don't count your army. God's the one who's gotten you where you've gotten, not your army. If you've got the Lord with you, you don't need to worry about the size of your army. God will take care of you. But David's persistent. If you know your Old Testament, you know that David goes ahead and counts his army. It's an impressive number. God comes to David later and says, David, because of your pride and because of your self-sufficiency, I'm going to judge you terrible plague is unleashed on the nation of Israel and it's only through David's pleading that God stays his hand of destruction. Most commentators believe that Psalm 30, verses six through 12, is David recounting his sin of pride and self-sufficiency when he took that census and counted his troops. See, because what we need to recognize is when we read Psalm 30, six through 12, we're not just reading David giving praise and thanks to the Lord for his goodness. Church, we're seeing David praise and thank the Lord for his discipline in his life. David is essentially saying, God, thank you that even in my pride, in my self-sufficiency, you met me right where I'm at and you, you brought healing You turned my lament into dancing. You took off sackcloth, clothed me with gladness so that I could praise you forever. David is praising God not just for his forgiveness and mercy. He's praising God for disciplining him and restoring him back to where he needed to be. This is important because I think so often we relegate God's grace to forgiveness. Mercy, redemption, kindness. And oftentimes what we fail to remember is that Hebrews... Hebrews 12, verse 5 says this, And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not take the Lord's discipline lightly or lose heart when you are reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and punishes every son he receives. Now to be clear, the discipline of the Lord is not God's punitive wrath on us. God's discipline is always with a goal to restore us. Sometimes God's discipline in my life has been God giving me exactly what I was asking for. Anybody ever been there? You're praying for something, you're praying for something, God says, okay, here you go. And there's consequence that comes from that. Sometimes it's God allowing us to step out of obedience into disobedience and and reap the consequence of poor decisions in our lives. But regardless, the discipline of the Lord is real. It's real that God brings this kind of transforming, sanctifying grace in our lives because it's a reminder of what God's promised us in other places, that God is going to finish what he starts in us, that God is never going to leave us, forsake us, and that includes moments when I'm being stupid, when I'm making poor decisions, when I'm in disobedience. God never leaves me or forsakes me, but even in those moments, there's a discipline that God brings. Here's the point, and this is the principle I want you to see here. Gratitude grows, therefore, in humble confession of our sin before the Lord. Gratitude grows not only when grace was personal and when I'm in authentic relationships, gratitude grows when I humbly confess my sin and my brokenness to the Lord. Amen. Now, I'm going to do a whole psalm just on confession of sin later in this series, but suffice it to say for now, what humility and confession does in my life is it opens my eyes to see the truth. You see, what pride fundamentally does is pride is an exaltation of self. Pride is an exaltation of my desires, my wants, and it's a blinding of my eyes from the truth. Pride blinds me from the truth because I think in the moments of pride that I'm the center of the universe. But when I repent of pride, when I turn from my sin and humble myself before the Lord and confess to him what I've done, I'm opening my eyes to see the goodness and the grace of Jesus. Because when in humility I confess my sin to the Lord, what I realize is that his grace and his mercy know no boundaries. Humility has a way of opening our eyes to see God for who he is so that we can be thankful and grateful for him. I saw that illustrated this past week when we were on our cruise we had the privilege of going out one afternoon to watch whales and that was really fun. We got to uh, see uh, some orcas, some killer whales that were out there. We got to see a little baby orca calf going in the water, real cute. But as we were heading back for land... Our captain of the ship said, hey, we're going to stop in this one spot because we've gotten word from the spotters on the shore that there are humpback whales close by to where we are. And these are these 60, 70 foot massive whales that were all out here in the bay of Victoria, British Columbia. And so we're we're moving along there and we're going through the water and we come to this one little spot and our boat stops right in the middle of the water. And it probably wasn't three or four minutes we were there when all of a sudden there was this huge blowhole and spout of water 30 or 40 feet from the boat. I mean, just just right, like like right over there where you guys are sitting. It was like the whale was right there, and everybody rushes with their cameras. They've got their phones out. They got cameras out. The guides on the ship. You know, you've done well when the guides are smiling and giddy, and they're laughing and taking pictures. I mean, it was it was incredible. It's just this beautiful moment of of beholding God's creation. But as we were listening and watching and seeing everybody get excited about over the over my shoulder. I heard this mom in this fight with her two teenage sons. And so I'm a people watcher by hobby. I I love to watch people. Anybody like to watch people out here beside me? A cruise is a great place to watch people. Uh, Cruises and Walmart. Those are the two places that... Primo. Primo people watching territory. And so I can't help but notice what's going on. And so Shelly's our, our, our family photographer. I tell people I have a paid photographer on the payroll in our family. And she's taking care of the picture. So I'm, I'm watching, but I'm kind of listening to what's going on behind me. And what I'm realizing is that the sons are bored. And I'm listening to this mom say, well, what did you think we were going to see? Did you think we were going to get in the water with the whales themselves? You know, she's, she's doing her best. <laughs> She's doing her best to try to say, what did you think was going to happen? Did you, you know? And so obviously there were some expectations that were not being met. And you know, I, I'm kind of like judging you know, as I'm listening to this whole thing. I'm like, what in the world? How can these guys, these teenage boys, not just be amazed at what they're watching? And it wasn't 60 seconds that went by before God just kind of convicted me and said, Spencer, how often? Are you 50 feet away from what I'm doing and you're bored? How often are you so close to what I'm doing and how I'm working that you don't really see it and behold it for what it is? And can I tell you the reason I think so often I don't? It's because I'm pridefully so wrapped up in what I'm doing. I've got the blinders on. But the beauty of humility and confession that David illustrates for us here, his humility takes those blinders off our eyes, lets us behold what God is doing right in front of us, and courage and cultivates a life of gratitude. We're going to have the opportunity this morning to finish our service by celebrating the Lord's Supper. Um, This is a meal just for those of us that know Christ. If you're a follower of Jesus, if you... have